I'm Susanna Walters, and welcome to Ask a Feminist, a podcast from Signs, Journal of Women in Culture and Society. On this podcast, we actually ask feminists about the pressing issues of the day to provide the kind of feminist analysis and context that is often missing in mainstream coverage. On this episode, Sandra McAvoy speaks to Jennifer Flurry about what the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan means for Afghan women and for the feminist movement in Afghanistan. Jennifer's expertise as a geographer and her transnational feminist perspective are sorely needed in this perilous moment. As the withdrawal was underway, we heard familiar concerns voiced by pundits and politicians about the plight of Afghan women under the Taliban. But the broader context of the long U.S. occupation, its effects on gender relations, and the history of women's organizing in Afghanistan makes for a much more complicated picture, as you'll hear. Jennifer, a professor of geography at University of Colorado Boulder, who has worked in and on Afghanistan for almost 20 years, illuminates this complex history in this conversation with Sandra, who is clinical associate professor of political science at Boston University and a member of the Science Editorial Board. I hope you enjoy this important conversation. Hi, this is Sandy McAvoy. I'm a clinical associate professor of political science and women's gender and sexuality studies at Boston University. And I'm so excited to be conducting this Ask a Feminist interview for Signs on the gender politics of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're thrilled to be joined by Jennifer Flory, who is a professor of geography at the University of Colorado Boulder, who has written extensively about gender and Afghanistan for many years. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Jennifer, your work has been so instrumental in examining the gendered and spatial dimensions of post-conflict aid and development programs, particularly those in South Asia and in the Middle East. Much of your work is also grounded in empirical research in Afghanistan, where you work with and learn from women as they navigate militarism and political violence. Later in our discussion, I'd like to talk more about feminist research methodology and the considerations that you make as a white feminist entering the field. But before we do that, I wonder if for listeners who aren't as familiar with Afghanistan and the history of Western intervention there, if you might offer a brief overview that will help listeners contextualize our conversation. So most of most of what um, many people are hearing about Afghanistan now is really about the last you know, 20 years of, of U.S. intervention in Afghanistan. And I would argue that um, we really need to go back further than that. So, for example, the U.S. has been engaged in Afghanistan really in, in, since the 1980s when uh, the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan in 1979 as part of sort of assisting the existing communist country there that had initiated a coup just a few years earlier. So, so during the 80s, the U.S. began fighting a covert and then more overt war in Afghanistan through the what are known as the Mujahideen, which were a different groups of men who were basically working together to fight against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And those men were basically working through Pakistan and getting funds from the U.S. and the, and Saudi Arabia to basically fight against the Soviet war. 
um, I mean, Soviet occupation. So, so that that time period, I think, is really important because the U.S. Um, this was the Reagan administration and the U.S. thinking geopolitically at the time was to create a pan-Islamic jihad to fight against godless communism. So it was a very different discourse than we saw if we fast forward to the U.S. interventions starting in in the 2000 in, after 2001 after September 11th, and so that that time period. Also, we could look at a lot of failures and missteps around what types of organizations were being funded, how they were being funded, and what kinds of, um, I would say, war crimes or war abuse was being acceptable, was seen as acceptable by the U.S. So this this was a really interesting time that many people want to forget, like as if it never happened, right? And so when you look at the 1990s as well, the U.S. was very was it was involved in Afghanistan after the Soviet war in ended in 89 when the so the Soviets withdrew um the, and that that negotiation was brokered between the United States the Soviet Union and the UN and so they basically left the uh the Afghan government out of those negotiations so that was one issue that was a problem and then after that the Soviet Union falls in 1991 and um, that's followed by extensive um, lack of funding of the government in the Soviet-backed government because the Soviet Union has fallen. And so the U.S. really pulls back uh, support also for the Mujahideen. And so what they do is they fight a civil war, the Mujahideen, uh, for control of the capital city, Kabul. And then that that runs until about 1996 when the Taliban basically takes over the capital city and the Taliban were also created uh, in Pakistan by uh, taking men and young boys from refugee camps and basically indoctrinating them into this this kind of particular method of warfare and um, having them memorize the Quran through rote memorization in Arabic and language that they don't, they didn't speak and really coming into Afghanistan in an illegitimate way. Like they weren't really seen as a indigenous fighting force in, in Afghanistan. And, and many Afghans really see them as a creation of Pakistan as well. And so the U S wasn't really in, involved that much in Afghanistan at that time. There wasn't a lot of humanitarian aid or economic development, for example. And the U S was an early supporter of the Taliban because they really felt like it was the answer to the quote unquote war, war reary people of Afghanistan. And so, you know, the U S um, discourse starts to change about Afghanistan really in the late nineties, when a various feminist organizations start advocating for women's rights in Afghanistan, right? And they really see women as, um, you know, as a, as a real victim of the Taliban. And so that begins to change public discourse um, about women's rights in Afghanistan in, in the U.S. and at the congressional level to basically think about how uh, more attention can be placed on Afghanistan. However, I would say nothing really happens at that sort of political level until we see, and until the events of September 11th, right? When the U.S. is basically looking towards Afghanistan as the problematic country, right? Even though zero Afghans were on the planes that hit the buildings and uh, they weren't geostrategically involved in that terrorist event, but the the uh, Al-Qaeda having their 
their training camps in Afghanistan was really why Afghanistan became this target of of U.S. Uh, that led to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan on October 7th, 2001. So I guess all of that to say is that the real take home message here is the former allies became adversaries, right? So Osama bin Laden was an ally of the U.S. in the 80s. So many of the Mujahideen that were allies of the U.S. in the in the 80s and even into the 90s became adversaries and really spoke out or or quite literally were involved in in in, a, in campaigns that were against the U.S. you know militarily or through violence. And so you have this 40 year history that really is now truncated into this 20 year history about you know the U.S. role in Afghanistan. And so getting into you know where when the U.S invaded Afghanistan in, in 2001. This was not just the US, it was a coalition of, a, of the willing, it was many NATO partners, and, and that all started what is known as the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan. And then that was followed by um, lots of humanitarian aid and international development assistance coming from various countries, the US being the largest donor, the largest military, the largest influencer, but you had over 15 50, 50 countries uh, operating in Afghanistan at any given time. And so that's a, that's another another reason why we really need to understand this as very much U.S. driven, but but a very international effort um, to to basically reconstruct Afghanistan because the country had been completely destroyed uh, during so much war up until 2001, and and the capital city had really been destroyed during during the civil war, and, and the Taliban from 96 to 2001 were not a, an effective at reconstructing or um, really even governing the country, let alone. Um, rebuilding the city and working with international organizations to help them do that. So you had this, um, you had the situation in 2001 where there was so much destruction and so many people displaced. You, you know, huge numbers of refugees in Iran and in Pakistan and other neighboring countries, and people starting to slowly come back and, in many ways, believe in this U.S.-led effort to reconstruct the country and create a new government. Um, so, so that's just, I mean, it's a complicated overview, but I guess I, I, I just really um, want to make sure that we go back far enough because so much of the discourse has really just been on the last 20 years. Well, thank you for that. It, it does help set the stage for the rest of our conversation. Uh, and I know that it's difficult to summarize and condense the history of a conflict, especially one that has so many important nuances and international actors in just a few minutes, but you did that perfectly. Uh, if I may, I want to start from the beginning. That is to say, with your training and your research interests. You're a feminist political geographer by training. So tell me, what brought you to this work? And what does this lens of analysis bring to a conversation about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? That's a great question. So, so what brought me to the work as a feminist political geographer? So I was, I started my PhD research in August of 2001. <laughs> and I was very much interested in, in looking at organizations, feminist organizations that were using education as a form of political resistance. Like how did that work? And as a geographer, I was really interested in Afghanistan because so much of the education that was being done, particularly by feminist organizations, was done underground and in secret or 
done in, in refugee areas in Pakistan. And so that's how I found the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, or RAWA, which was a radical feminist organization that was also really effectively using the internet to gain international support for women's issues in, in Afghanistan at that time. And so I connected to some of their supporters in, in the U.S. in order to learn more about the organization and see if uh, it would be feasible for me to study them and look at this education piece as well. And so as part of that, I I really started to you know read everything I could on Afghanistan and, and get to understand the country's history and what the major contemporary issues were through the lens of Rawa and their support network. And then of course, 9-11 happened and that sort of slowed all of that research down a bit, but also in some ways gave me um, an opportunity to spend more time reading and, and connecting with their networks and going to conferences and going to various events focused on gender-based and, and particularly women's issues in Afghanistan and the sort of post 9-11 environment and also collecting um, information from the media about how the kind of discourse of saving Afghan women was really starting to form in 2001 and 2002. And, and that really became part of that research. And so thinking about how um, a spatial analysis or really a, a feminist political ge geographic analysis connects to uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is so much of of my research and my analysis has been around this idea of the kind of geographies of aid and development and where the the kind of failures and falling short are by not looking at it through a geographic lens. And what I mean by that is, you know, the the withdrawal was well. First of all, it wasn't well planned. It was so chaotic. It didn't take into consideration people who live in rural areas the people who have a difficulty getting to getting to Kabul airport, not just from rural areas, but also in the city, and then how that played out through a gendered lens. So for example, if you look at a lot of the images of people at the airport in Kabul, as it became more chaotic and more violent, most of the people in those images are are men. Some are women, but many of the people that were able to get off of, uh, get onto the planes during the evacuation were men because they were able to push their way through. Uh, a lot of families and, and and many families that I know we're talking with were really reluctant to send young children or women or or more vulnerable men to the airport because they were afraid that they would they would be injured or killed or crushed in in this kind of mad rush to get out of the country. And then there are a number of people who who also worked with Americans or known to have worked with Americans or other internationals who lived in villages out well outside of the capital city or other major cities that have airports and just the logistics of getting to certain areas was really difficult. And so those kind of geographic differences, I think were not really incorporated any any media representation because they're more complicated because we like to think, I think from a you know basic level, people think of Afghanistan as the as just one country, right? With and that and we flatten everything out and don't remember or realize that this is an incredibly diverse country where you have mo multiple ethnicities, multiple languages, different education levels, different belief systems. And even though everyone's mostly Muslim, that doesn't mean they all believe the same, right? And so those kind of that kind of flattening and narrowing of space is something that I've really been working against through my research. It's so helpful to really be able to get a kind of more macro um, assessment of, of those days that probably so many of us around the world watched on television. Um, 
during the evacuation. I want to turn now to a topic I've I know that you've written about and and certainly have a a long history of discussing uh, and and addressing in your own work, and that is this idea um, that many feminists around the world have been critical of the U.S. led war on terror. Um, as someone who's so deeply familiar with the politics of of Afghanistan and how Afghans themselves, particularly women, um, have understood the war. What are your thoughts? What what, you, what comes to mind when you think about the U.S. war on terror in Afghanistan? Right. Thank you for that question. So, I, in in many ways, um, the the war on terror. I think one of the biggest problems is it it sort of put all Muslims into one group, or maybe sometimes you got the Sunni Shia division, but didn't really think of them. Kind of like what I was just saying about Afghanistan of just being flattening out the country as if it was you know, one country, one voice, one belief system. Um, you know, not all Muslims think alike. They don't all pray in the same way or have the same belief systems. Yes, there's these two large groups, the Sunni and Shia, but they're not the only divisions. They're not the only differences. You know, there's a lot of debate among among Muslim scholars even. I mean, at, at the academic level, there's, there's debate and discussion and really lively um, ways of thinking about the religion and and meaning and interpretation. And then when you get to the sort of everyday belief structure, it's it's even more diverse, right? That those kind of prevailing discourses still exist to this day, I think is super unfortunate. And then the other thing is the way in which women were really weaponized uh, by the Bush administration to fight the war on terror. Like we were going to go in there, we're going to save Afghan women. And the way in which women in the U.S. were really used strategically to sell that message. So like the Feminist Majority Foundation, Laura Bush herself, giving the first First Lady's radio address, talking about Afghanistan and how we have to go and protect the women and children of Afghanistan. And um, and then also, you know, famous feminists were engaged in that, in that work in the U.S. and other places. And so, and over time, the more I conducted research on this, is this, like I said, a real weaponization of women to the point where the U.S. military actually uh, initiated a program called the FET program, meaning female engagement teams, where they would send all female Marines and then later army personnel into villages to basically with this idea that it would draw out men because they would be curious to see this group of women um, <laughs> from the West in their community. And then that, and then the idea would be, would be that those women would be able to uh, go, enter into homes and and speak with women in Afghanistan without um, without disrupting the sort of gender expectations. Because if a man crossed over the threshold into a home in Afghanistan, particularly without permission or without, um, you know, by banging down the door and just coming in, that's really seen as a violation of the whole household and a violation of the women of, of the household, even if the whether or not there is an actual violation, right? So. So that was a way to kind of offset those gender norms. And I thought it was really clunky and not well thought out and um, didn't work exactly as planned or intended. Um, and so, so that was really an interesting thing is just to see how that women uh, and, and gender really became very dichotomized as if women in Afghanistan don't live with men and are, you know, aren't part of families that include men. So that was one problem. And then this, the way in which, men were represented, right, as either, you know, talibs and insurgents or as potential um, 
you know, collaborators and, and assistants in the US effort. Um, but they weren't necessarily seen as feminists, which I thought was really surprising because my research and as many other people who re have researched Afghanistan have shown that like men are incredibly involved in feminist movements. Now, there are plenty of men that are misogynists and <laughs> patriarchal and not really involved at all, but many women's organizations really rely on men and really engage men in that work in, in a way that I thought was in, much more active and engaged than I've seen in like women's organizations I've been involved with in the US, for example. And then I would say just one other quick thing and then I'll let this go, but the other, the war and terror was also used to create a, a discourse to marginalize Muslims in, in other countries too. So you see that happening in Europe and it being used in South Asia in other ways. This is also interesting and really helpful. Um, there's so much nuance here, right? There's so many different ways we need to really be looking um, at this, um, this idea of uh, gender in Afghanistan and the U.S. occupation. Uh, you've answered this a little bit already or touched upon it, but I want to go a little bit further. Um, you and other um, scholars of Afghanistan have um, been um, quite critical of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Afghanistan as being at least partly uh, motivated by the U.S. interest in um, developing women's human rights, right? Um, I've seen elsewhere that you've described this strange or false preoccupation with women's rights as a sort of frenzy. Um, I wonder, what do we miss by not being more intersectionally curious about gender and women's lives in Afghanistan, both pre and post-war? So I think by not taking an intersectional, an intersectional approach and looking at women as like Chandra Mahanti would say, like as a single category of analysis, which is really um, a way of narrowing and and not taking in all the diversity and complexity that I was just talking about, really doesn't leave room for women to have different ideas, to disagree, to have debate, to engage in lively conversation and discussion about what works and what doesn't work based on everyone's diverse experiences. It also doesn't take into consideration the, that women have multiple identities. So women aren't just women, right? They're, they're maybe part of a particular ethnic group. They may be a devout Muslim. They may might identify as an academic. They may identify as a embroiderer. You know, I mean, there's like so many ways in which their identity is complicated. So, you know, everyone has complicated identities and Afghanistan is no different, right? And so so th this kind of flattening out of, 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 of nuance and not seeing women as, as these kind, with all these other complications, contradictions and, and, you know, connections and disconnections, right? Some women don't get along and that's okay. And, they, you know, that's, that should be in, in some ways celebrated. Like, I think that diversity should be celebrated, not something to be seen as a negative, right? And men and men are never asked these questions, right? I had so many women's rights activists in Afghanistan say, they always say we don't get along, but where do the, are the, do the men get along? Do they all agree? You know, they don't. And and that's, no one questions that, but somehow women are, are held to a higher standard, but with such low expectations, right? You know, like they're, they're held to a much, much higher standard but they're not given the tools or, or the time or the space they need to actually get anywhere close to those expectations that men aren't even held to. So, so those, those are some of the other issues I think that um, were, were totally not considered in part of this frenzy. 
and and I use the term frenzy too because I felt like people were just sort of like getting connected to this Afghan moment, if you will. Like I want to be part of this saving mantra, right? I want to connect to what everyone's caring about and what what we're hearing in the media is something we should all care about, and it became almost trendy. Um, and so, in some of my work, I talked about women almost becoming this currency. Like it was a way in which exchange, like there became a value or a unit of exchange. What that's what I mean by currency, in that women were exchanged between organizations. So, so international non governmental organizations or NGOs could say, "We have a woman on staff," or "We have women on staff." So we're super progressive, and we're part of the saving women trope that's that's supposedly occurring in Afghanistan. And then other organizations, you know, would say we're we're training women to do this work or we're saving women in this way and that way and in and in many cases um if you look closer at those programs they they weren't necessarily doing that you know and um and dr adalitsai has written on this extensively she was she was looking at bakeries for widows so so widows in afghanistan were working in in these bakeries even during the taliban time and then afterward and they were hailed by many um, different groups that would come through to tour these bakeries as, you know, these heroes and these feminists of Afghanistan and defying the Taliban by working. And um, and because, you know, she's Afghan and has amazing language skills, she was basically interpreting for the women in these bakeries what these, you know, internationals were saying. And And the women's response, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but they were like, if we're so wonderful, why don't they pay us a living wage? <laughs> why why don't we make, you know, why don't we make more money? Why don't we get better hours? Why don't they provide childcare? You know, like they were actually women in incredibly low wage labor, very, and, you know, not, they didn't have childcare, they didn't have attention to all of their needs, but then being hailed as these amazing heroes when, you know, women who are widows in Afghanistan really do struggle. You know, the, it is a difficult position to be in because it is a very patriarchal society. And so not having a husband or or a male partner in some way to protect and and work with you, is it puts you in a very difficult and marginalized position. And so you have that mi- mismatch between the rhetoric of saving women and the reality of their lives, right? And that that mismatch, I would say, has continued for for all of this time. You know, there wasn't, there hasn't been uh, programs that were really trying to connect the rhetoric of the saving women uh, mantra and the reality of women's lives and how diverse they are. And and what what a woman who's educated and speaks English in urban Af- Afghanistan needs is very different from a woman who only speaks one minority language that may be an even unwritten language and lives in a village and is, you know, basically engaged in farming all of her life. Like their, their needs are really, really different. And that was, that was very rarely taken up as part of the, um, the saving women trope. It's so interesting and so smart. Um, So I want to keep this um, part, this portion of our interviewer um, discussion together um, at the micro level. And, and I want to continue to think about women's lives on the ground, as we say. I was wondering, can you tell us some of the lesser known women's rights organizations that are working in Afghanistan? Um, what kind of work have they done historically and what are they doing now post-withdrawal? 
Sure. So, so there are a number of women's, both women's rights organizations and, and women's civil society and non-governmental organizations. And some of them were founded, like the more, the more well-known ones like Rawa, which because they have this huge international support network. So they, they really have gotten a lot of press, I would say, over the years. Um, but there are smaller organizations, some that have partnered with Rawa and some that haven't, that uh, some were started in the, in the late 70s, similar to Rawan, but many were, were really founded in the 80s and 90s um, in refugee areas uh, in Pakistan and, and some in Iran too. It's like Af the Afghan Women's Network being one of them and, um, and several other organizations that basically were, were founded to improve women's lives in various ways that not always would be recognizable to Westerners, right? You know, and so, uh, and some of this, uh, some of it was around, certainly around education. And I always found it interesting when we talk about education, many from the Western perspective was about, around education. So women could get job skills training and get jobs. And it was this very kind of liberal feminist, um, you know, add women and stir approach, or, you know, if women have income, then they will be treated better and that will make everything better. And you tie a nice bow on it. But Many women work in Af have worked in Afghanistan for you know centuries as carpet weavers, embroiderers, you know, and, and very various different types of employment that have it did, that that didn't necessarily lead to them having um, being respected more in their households or having more of a say on how funds were spent and that sort of thing. So it didn't necessarily disrupt the patriarchal structure of the family or the community in the ways that Westerners assumed it would. So there's that that one piece. And then other women's rights organizations were really focused on, like I said, on education, but but a, a lot of this was on sort of educating women about their rights in Islam, right? So that's so you had Islamic feminist organizations as as part of this. You also had organizations that were really focused on doing midwifery tra trainings, right? And helping women to improve their their health in various ways everything from basic hygiene to um, helping women improve prenatal care because you had such high maternal and infant mortality rates in afghanistan so so that was another area where uh, uh, some women's rights groups were looking at and then and others were just basically consciousness raising similar to some consciousness raising groups in the us say in the 70s which were just helping women gain access to understanding what their rights are in, 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 in Afghanistan, in Islam, and then how to access those rights. And then other organizations, and this is a, a one that's actually in the US, but also in Afghanistan, uh, Women for Afghan Women, they, they help to run shelters for women. So women that, that left home because of abuse or ill treatment, they, they ran shelters to um, help women uh, basically sort of build back their life and be safe from harm from from their families or other people that were trying to to harm them. So 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 the work well let me start with the work that's done historically. So these women's organizations have been working for some time um, on on very low budgets, right? And so even though you had all this money coming into Afghanistan, so much of the problem with that funding coming in is that it was subcontracted out. So you would have, for example, like a USAID program, and then they would hire a implementing partner, which is often a for-profit company from the US. And then that company would then hire a local 
NGO or civil society organization to implement the project. And so by the time it got to that third partner, the, there was a lot of lot less money <laughs> because most of the money went into big salaries and logistics and security for the international organizations. And so those women's organizations have always struggled with uh, with having enough funding. And that is even more acute now with the withdrawal because there's really no international funding coming into Afghanistan um, to speak of. I mean, there's some world food um, uh, world food programs and world health programs, but it's very minimal as far as the type of funding that was coming in for these particular organizations. Uh, and what we're starting to hear about is, is women's organizations or, or women from various organized groups in Afghanistan that basically were evacuated in that that sort of unfinished wave of evacuations in August um, are starting to run like councils or shuras or jurgas in the camps to basically come up with the next plan. Like how are they going to support women's rights among Afghans in the diaspora and, and what is going to happen to quite frankly, the women left behind that worked for these organizations in Afghanistan. Because that's what you have to realize is while a lot of the high profile women that, that were leaders of these organizations may have gotten out or, or women who were in leadership positions like as governors or mayors or in parliament may have been able to get out because of their connections, the women under them that were like their support network in the country, for example, um, were, were mostly not evacuated. And so so you definitely have women activists who are in hiding, who are, but also trying to figure out like, what can we do next? How are you, what will the future be for women and girls in Afghanistan? Because, you know, the Taliban's already banned women from attending high school and or women and girls from high school and colleges. And, and while some schools are fighting back, their ability to do so is really quite limited. You touched on this just a, a little bit, um, when during your conversation, your discussion uh, related to women's rights organizations, um, you know, sometimes from a Western perspective, it's difficult for even people whom are very interested in women's rights or very interested in understanding these more nuanced components of conflict to find instances where women are being agentive, to find places where women have been successful as women pushing back against any number of difficult structural oppressions. Can you um, maybe just kind of fill in the blanks a little bit about ways in which you've observed or ways in which you understand women to really um, embody this idea of agency despite there being so much conflict around them? That's a great question. Well, I mean, women have, have basically expressed their agency in, in, in various ways. Um, and I'll just touch on a few. So, so for example, like going back to education, if you look at the, if you looked at the Islamic law faculty or department at Kabul universities filled with women, right? So women were very clever realizing like, if I gain more knowledge about Islam, I'll be able to advocate for my rights in that way. So, so I would say that that's one way that women have really, and I, I mean, I've been very fascinated with the Islamic feminist approach in Afghanistan because they've, they've had some really important strides in advocating and articulating women's rights and really pushing back against some customary practices that significantly disadvantage women or really pushing for women to be able to inherit property because it, they can in the Quran, but it's not a common practice in Afghanistan. Even though it's not illegal, it's not a common practice, and so it, it often doesn't happen. But but just to remind everyone, they they also have done this by partnering with men, by prog with progressive mullahs and imams, because 
sadly, women still aren't able to speak with authority on Islam in the same way a male voice can in Afghanistan. And so, so a lot of it is through kind of partnerships, trust building, and connections with with men who are who are also reading the Quran and the Hadith and the religious books and saying, wait a second, it says men and women are equal before the eyes of God. We really, we really need to stop some of these practices or, you know, and it clearly says that women should be educated and that sort of thing. So I would say that was one way. Other ways, which were really interesting um, ways, which was just really get missed and, and, and sometimes even missed by, by myself compared to like a, an, an, an Afghan that really knows the culture in that kind of visceral way that versus someone who studies it from an outside position is, is, is working within their culture in very, very careful and strategic ways. And this is, and you see this more because it, it being a patriarchal society, it also is very, uh, there's a lot of, uh, respect for elders and and uh, and people who are identified as honorable, as I mentioned before, and so you have older women who would figure out ways to influence by uh, sometimes through marriage practices, right? As um, for example, I, I've used this example a lot. So I was talking to this woman about how you know how she was able to influence certain marriage practices, and it, and in Afghanistan, if um, if two children are nursed by the same woman, they're considered siblings, even if they're not, even if they're not even related at all, like cousins or anything. And so women use, have used that to sort of stop and arrange marriage that they didn't agree with, <laughs> or or their daughter didn't want to happen or something by saying, oh, nope, I I nurse both these children, when they, I, both these young adults, I mean, when they were children, this marriage can't happen. You know, and so, and no man is gonna question that, right? So. So those are, I just thought that was always a really, that was a really interesting and cool example of kind of using sort of cultural taboos to their advantage to actually have influence. Women also have, often have a tremendous amount of other influence around marriages, around brokering them, because most of the marriages in Afghanistan are arranged. So, um, you know, mothers and sisters and aunties are very concerned about making sure that those marriage arrangements will protect their their daughter or niece or you know um granddaughter in some cases so 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 really making sure that they're very actively involved in those kind of marriage arrangements and then also if there is conflict in the marriage afterward being involved in sort of like more customary conflict mediation types of situations so so these very careful like delicate nuanced ways of working within their own culture which of course from an outsider's perspective it could be like how is that agency right but it's so clearly agency when you when you see how, how women are enabled to enact change or or make a, an immediate situation better for a fellow woman or sometimes even a man in their family to um, basically have those kinds of influence. Uh, so, so those are those have been some of the really interesting ways. I mean, there's many of other examples, but those are just some of the ones that I found really interesting that women were able to um, use their position as a woman and within their culture to to create change. So, it, I'm particularly interested in your ability to kind of take the temperature of what's happening on the ground again, and and I think what um, good feminist analysis helps us do is to take local femininities and local masculinities seriously. Um, and so I wonder from your perspective, how have masculinities and femininities been solidified during the U.S. war in Afghanistan? 
And then how have you seen them either stay the same or change uh, following the withdrawal? Well, well, one of the interesting things that was just drove me crazy, actually, <laughs> the beginning of the, of the sort of early intervention periods, there was this attempt to have a beauty school for, for women and became this really popular book, the, you know, the beauty school of Kabul and everything and, and, and sort of trying to understand Afghan femininities from the, from a Western perspective, you know, makeup, hair, and as if that didn't already exist, which it totally did, of course, but, but this kind of way of, of making Afghan women's femininity recognizable to, to people in the West. So that was, that was one of the, like, bad ideas, I think. And then, and then changing, you know, the gender structure of women's lives. Like I said, women live with men, They're, you know, as husbands, brothers, fathers, cousins, whatever, you know, and so this idea that women were not, you know, a single category of analysis, but also seen as somehow separate from men, and separate from from the kind of gender structure that exists, that exists in Afghanistan, I think was really problematic and, and didn't, um, didn't go well in in many of the types of programs that were focused on that. It did it did open up some space for women in Afghanistan to explore activities that were really forbidden, particularly during the Taliban time and even during the Civil War. And in other ways, women were really their entree into formal leadership positions through quota systems that the U.S. and other internationals pushed in, like Parliament and that sort of thing, made it very, in some ways, difficult for women to. Um, identified their leadership and their influence at that more formal scale. And so, and some of the women that did it effectively, when we interviewed them, they really complained about men actually saying, well, I can work with you because you're like a man, <laughs> you know, like, or you're, you're, you're basically a man, meaning that they would say like, why can't I be this competent and still be seen as a woman? Why do, you know, so, so, so Afghan men really trying to also figure out women who were competent in ways that, they were conditioned to believe was impossible by saying, oh, well, you're, you're like a man, you know, and so that, then I can work with you. Um, and then I would say that the, the, the backlash for women um, from, you know, more conservative groups really also happened in Afghanistan, you know, and so in some ways I would say it was because women didn't have the skills or was sort of pushed into positions just because they were women. Because that friends they had mentioned before, that was also happening in Afghanistan. So it was like, oh, there's quotas. We can put this woman up and then she'll do whatever we tell her to do. And, you know, like, and so putting a woman up who wasn't terribly competent or or having women speak on television that weren't well versed in in Quranic or Muslim or, I mean, I'm sorry, Islamic education. And, and then they weren't able to properly answer questions. So those kind of things were also done, and I would argue somewhat purposefully, to illustrate women's inabilities rather than their abilities within, within the culture. And then uh, a fair amount of women who worked either as women's ministers or, or in the women's ministry also said that they felt like having a women's ministry was was almost like a loss leader where it was like oh well you have a women's ministry for that question but then the ministry wouldn't give be given any power or funds or ability to actually attend to the things that people needed and so it was so some women were saying why isn't there a women's ministry in every division in every in every office in the in the government right not just like in every ministry should have a women's division or something like that and then a number of male feminist activists i i interviewed they were like we don't need a women's ministry we need a men's ministry because we need to educate men about women's rights in islam 
Because if a woman comes home and says, I, I have all of these rights, it may lead to conflict in the household. Where if a man is educated about what the rights are, he's more willing to like engage in that conversation. And a, a number of female judges I interviewed sort of early on, and this was probably like mid-2000s, they, they also took that approach in training programs where they would have training programs for women's rights. And, and a number of women would come and they would spend the first few days of the, of the program talking about men's rights in the constitution, in the country, in Islam. And so women would go home and tell their husbands everything they learned about their rights. And they would be like, this is a great program. Keep going. You know? And then they, and then they could slowly introduce women's rights in, in relationship to men's rights, again, in the Quran and Islam and in the constitution and in society. And so those, those kind of approaches really help to offset some of the, the more conservative backlash towards um, or against, I would say, women's rights in Afghanistan. And because the and and I would say the other issue was uh, the sort of problem of all these international workers in Afghanistan really modeling, I would say, in many ways, bad behavior, or what, what is perceived as immoral behavior, like, you know, uh, promiscuity or um, drinking, uh, drug use, those kind of things that that really got misinterpreted uh, to to Afghan men who worked in offices of being unsafe places for women because they were like, oh, they're doing these things that um, are really kind of, a, they're against our culture and I'm worried that it will ruin my daughter's reputation or my wife's reputation if she goes and works for this office where everyone's known to go out and party at, at night and, you know, sleep with each other and that sort of thing. So I think those those kind of behaviors um, made it, it difficult for women to access certain spaces because they were really seen as, you know, some of the behaviors of the internationals were seen as negative. And also when, when we interviewed international female aid workers from various countries, mostly from the U.S., but from other countries too, all but one of them, and we interviewed over 100, had been sexually harassed or assaulted by international men, not by Afghan men. And so that kind of um, that knowledge and that information that was not lost on Afghans. And so there was, a, it's particularly in the early intervention period in the, in the 2000s, there was a lot of fear about women working in offices or, or engaging with the international community. I want to shift now to the politics of producing knowledge and its relationship to your empirical work, which we talked a little bit about. Um, I wonder, as a scholar who is sensitive to and guided by a feminist research ethos, I wonder if you can tell me uh, about a time when you were on the ground and you encountered something that was really difficult to work through, or perhaps a situation or a decision that felt especially hard um, given your feminist training. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, first, just going to Afghanistan, being a citizen of a country that had invaded them <laughs> was really hard, you know, sort of trying to explain my position um, to people as an educator, as someone who wanted to learn about Afghanistan, because I often got misunderstood as an aid worker or an international development worker. And to the point where so many people I would was working with or interviewing would be like, why do you want to understand like they realized a few questions in this wasn't the typical, you know, humanitarian aid survey. And so they were like, wow, you really want to know about our culture. <laughs> so there was a lot of kind of shock around that. And um, 
and just not sure what to do with with me <laughs> as as that kind of a person um you know coming from the west being i mean i'm a white western feminist female person right and so so i think that was kind of that initial barrier um and i would say that uh the other other issue was many people when i give talks and because i try to give talks both academic and 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 more of a public like at public libraries or schools and that sort of thing and really try to challenge the sort of prevailing narratives about afghanistan and afghan women in particular and and people really want to buy into the narrative of oppressed women and i'm not saying that women in afghanistan aren't oppressed that that is not what i'm saying but they want to buy into a narrative that's so narrow and and really focuses on like physical abuse and and some of the really horrible stories that are true that you know have come out from afghanistan but that's not every woman's story and so telling a story of a woman who's done well and done well in a way that wasn't dependent on international funding is really not a narrative many Americans want to hear you know and so so that's and and that's the complication of it is that women were able to thrive without the Taliban but not always as a direct result of US funded programs right and in many ways the US you know keeping the Taliban at bay or the the Afghan government doing that in some ways you know did give women space to advocate for their own rights but i would say the way that they would go about it isn't isn't always reflective of the way that the US or other international donor organizations would like them to do it right or would expect them to do it and 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 i really felt much more comfortable critiquing international aid and development than i did criticizing afghan women right because of course you know they're human beings they make mistakes they're not they don't do everything perfectly but as a again white western woman from the US the you know the occupier of their country i didn't really feel comfortable making those critiques and criticisms okay um so our last question here together um um, you spoke a little earlier about um, women's human rights defenders, about the ways in we need to think through women's rights in context in Afghanistan. Um, for those women that were not able to evacuate as a result of their connection to high-profile politicians or agencies, um, what can we do to support um, those women, and what can we do to better understand those women that were left behind? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think in many ways, and this is a difficult situation because the Taliban is interested in having international aid and development organizations come back to Afghanistan, but they're but they they want that to happen in conjunction with being recognized as a legitimate power in Afghanistan, right? And so so it's sort of this really difficult catch twenty two. Like, should international countries? Uh, recognize the Taliban in order to provide funding, you know, to help people make it through the winter or, you know, just basic attending to the humanitarian crisis that's unfolding in Afghanistan. So that's one issue I think that's really difficult. And then for the women's women that have been left behind, I mean, this is a really difficult case because like I mentioned, women aren't, they're being banned from high schools and colleges. Women are able to really work like they were before. And, and, and most, most of the people that were working with Americans and other internationals have all lost their jobs. So you have hundreds of thousands of people, many of them women who have lost their source of income. Right. And so, so there's these really acute humanitarian issues that are, are here. And one way, at least in the U S that um, people can, 
what they can do right now and this over this next year is advocate for the passage of what is just being just being started, which is called the Afghanistan Adjustment Act. And uh, uh, Klobuchar and Coons are the two senators that are that have started this act and are looking for co-signers and will present it before the Senate. Um, and and that act is is uh, sadly it doesn't provide any more evacuations, so that's a separate issue. But it does provide more funding to help Afghans in the diaspora. And 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 why I think that's important for women left behind in Afghanistan is if we can give more attention and help to Afghan women in the diaspora that are newly in the diaspora who were women's rights activists, they can they can use some of their influence that they have here to help women in, in Afghanistan. So that's one, one way. And then the other way I, I would also agitate politically and um, with organizations that are, that are trying to work with Afghan women on the ground to be able to advocate for their rights within the new Taliban regime, which is no easy task, right? So the, so the Taliban is, is, you know, I mean, they're just a draconian regime. They're, they were horrible to women in the past. There's no indication that they're not going to be in this current iteration. And so, I mean, part of what we're doing is, you know, being very attentive to the, to the, my colleagues that I've worked with who are still stuck in Afghanistan and their family members to, to help them get out. And so I would also push for more evacuations because for many of these women that are, that were left behind, I mean, some of them want to stay and want to figure out how to navigate the Taliban regime, and some some of them want and really need to get out because they are they are such targets of Taliban violence, and and so I I, I would like to see more agitation against the U.S. or towards the U.S. government. I mean, to provide more fundings for evacuations. I sadly doubt that that will happen, but I do think that that is is something that will you know, p- could potentially lead to helping more women um, get out of the country or at least have their paperwork process so that they can evacuate through other means, right? Like through, um, you know, private travel and that sort of thing. And then for women that are that want to stay and are, are doing that really difficult and important work of advocating for rights, I mean, I would say, um, you know, stay in touch with people who are like myself and others who are who are working on this, because that's part of what we're doing now. I mean, our, my research has totally changed and fo- is focusing on what is happening with women on the ground. What are their needs? H- how can we support them? What can we do to, ha- to help them advocate for their own rights? And that's how it should be. Right. We need to listen to the Afghan women that are left behind on what they need. We need to understand um that we may not be able to fix everything and it may not always be throwing money at the problem. That's another thing that I think the U S just does sometimes is like, let's just pour a bunch of money at the problem and it'll all get sorted out. I mean, yes, funding is necessary in some ways, but there are other ways to advocate for, for women in Afghanistan, putting pressure on other countries that are really interested, like Russia and China that are really interested in the mineral wealth in Afghanistan, you know, supporting women through through you know islamic networks that like feminist islamic networks that that are are doing some amazing work for women all around the world and definitely women in afghanistan but i but i think in in some ways it's a sort of like paying attention listening because many of these organizations are very savvy right they're 
they have an internet presence, they, they have connections to people who have influence in other countries, and they'll start using those networks to gain, you know, influence and, and the things that they need to be successful and to advocate for their rights and their futures in this absolutely difficult environment. So, well, thank you for letting um, us do this. It was really nice. Oh, thanks. Thank you. It was so nice to chat with you. Thanks so much again to Jennifer Flory and Sandy McAvoy for this wonderful conversation. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review. Ask a Feminist is part of a larger project we're doing at Signs called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, which is all available for free on our website at signsjournal.org. You can find tons of fabulous free feminist content there, including our short take series, where we offer commentaries on feminist books, most recently, Amiya Srinivasan's The Right to Sex. We also have a series called Feminist Frictions, which has essays on controversial topics like trigger warnings and identity politics. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Signs Journal. I'm Susanna Walters. Thanks for listening.